invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1859, where we find our final trustworthy saying of Paul that he stated throughout his pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Pew Bible, page 1859, where we find our scripture reading tonight, Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 8. Starting the reading in verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, having have nothing to do with him, you may be sure that such a man is warped and simple. He is self-condemned. As far as the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I'd also like you to look in Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism with me. Lord's Day 32, in the back of your green Psalter hymnals. Lord's Day 32, page 44. Let's read the answers together with one voice. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. But we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself. So that in all our living, we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, no adulterer, thief, no covetous person, 
no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's the teaching of the catechism. Um, When I think about um, this passage, Titus chapter 3, I think about these words um, that I think are words that we could ponder for an eternity. In fact, we will ponder them for an eternity. And it's this. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. The kindness of God. Now the kindness of God is is unlike any kindness we may experience in this life. We might get a taste of God's kindness from the kindness of others, from the kindness of those made in God's image. But one of the things I think about when I think about this expression of God's kindness is one of my favorite passages from the Chronicles of Narnia. In the book, The Horse and His Boy, or The Boy and His Horse. This is what is said about the kindness of God in that book. Shasta is the main character of the horse and his boy. Um, He was found almost dead and was cared for by a man who mistreated him poorly, abused him, so he ran away and he experienced many hardships in his journey. Away from where he was, back to the place of Narnia. Listen to what is said here, what C.S. Lewis writes here. Being very tired and having nothing inside him, Shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he has felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop, so he went on at a walking pace, And the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant? Asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice. But I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta. After staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. 
So he told how he had never known his real father and mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives. And of all their dangers in Tashba'an. And about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Aravis. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one. But he was swift afoot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who confronted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you did not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to a shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Aravis, it was I, But what for, child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you, asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad, too. The mist was turning from black to gray and from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago, but while he had been talking to the thing, he had not been noticing anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness. His eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead he heard birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of his horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought it was the sun. He turned and saw pacing beside him, taller than a horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all of his life too far south. And Kalermin to have heard the tales that were whispered and tossed on about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor oversea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he needn't say anything. The high king above all kings stooped towards him, its mane And some strange and sullen perfume that hung about the mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky. And there were birds singing. C.S. Lewis displays perfectly in this portion of the narrative, the kindness of God. 
And it's even more perfectly displayed in the word that God has given us in Titus chapter 3. If there's one thing that could be said about this final trustworthy saying, it's this, that in Christ, the kindness of God saved us from our sins unto good works. In Christ, the kindness of God saved us from our sins unto good works. We have three points tonight. The first is at one time. Verse 3. The second is, but when. These are all temporal phrases. Verse 4 through 8. A. And then, number 3, do what is good. Verse 8b. All right, let's look at this first point. Paul, in writing to Titus, has set Titus up on the island of Crete, and he's given Titus the instructions to go from each church to church there on Crete and to set up elders. And so Paul is instructing Titus in very much the same way that he was instructing Timothy in his letters about how to be a good minister of the gospel, how to order the churches, how to lead the churches. And how to be somebody who is devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he does here in chapter 3. He gives sort of these things that he wants to leave Titus with. He's wrapping up his letter. And a lot of these have to do with reminding him, reminding him, reminding him, right? And so in verse uh, 3, verses 1 and 2, he, he, he gives some instruction. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility toward all men. This is the way that Christians are called to live at, at peace in the world that they are uh, in, to be salt and light, to live in a way that um, brings order and not disorder, uh, that brings uh, flourishing and not... Um, uh, harm, right? And this is what Paul then says in verse 3. At one time, right? He's basically saying, when you tell the people that this is how you're to live, to be subject to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, when he's telling them the new Christian character that they're supposed to have, he says that part of the motivation that we should have in living a new life, in living the newness of life, is reminding ourselves of what we once were. What we once were. At one time, we too, see how he includes himself in this group, right? We too, in a very real sense, he's talking about humanity. He's not directing this at uh, the Cretans. He's not directing this at Titus. He's not directing this at other people outside the church, right? He's directing this towards all humanity. He says, we too were foolish, disobedient. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is the condition of fallen men. This is the condition of us in our sinful nature. Living according 
to the flesh, as Paul will describe it in Romans chapter 8. This is a, 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 something that he does often in his letters. It's a vice list, right? It's a list of sins. It's a list of ways in which we, as children of wrath, prior to conversion, prior to our salvation, lived. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated, and hating one another. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism calls the condition of misery. Misery. We are meant to look at our past life of being slaves to sin as a condition of misery. Of misery. This is the way that we're continued encouraged to look at the sin that we still struggle with. It's not a good. This is something that makes our life a living hell. This is what we were at one time, all of us. This is something that applies to all. Nobody escapes this description. Paul is using a universal human descriptor here. He's saying, at one time, we all were in this condition. And it's important that Paul preface his gospel statement with this reality because without bad news, there is no good news. That's what the gospel means. That's what gospel means. It means good news, right? Without the bad news, there is no good news. And so this is what Paul does. He starts this off by stating, here is our condition. Here is our situation. Here is the place that we found ourselves in without God and without hope in the world. But when? Here is the shocker. The kindness and love of God, our Savior. Why does Paul use this description, the kindness and love of God? It is because the condition we found ourselves in, one which we should not be pitied for, Because we chose it, we rebelled against God. The condition in which we found ourselves in because of our own choices. One in which God could rightfully judge us and condemn us for. But rather, what he does is he expresses kindness and love toward us in our condition of helplessness. He shows his kindness and love. 
And not only does he show his kindness and love to us as sort of a fluffy, um, ethereal feeling that he's sort of good vibes that he gives us from heaven, right? Did you ever hear people say that? Send send prayers and good vibes my way. And I'm like, why do you ask for good vibes? They don't do anything. God doesn't send us good vibes of love and kindness Oh, I love you. You know, I'm kind towards you. But no, just like the lion, Aslan, he appears. He appears. You want to know what the love and kindness of God looks like? You want to know concretely that God loves you, that God is expressing kindness to you. Look no further than Jesus Christ. Look no further. I'm like, I'm going to draw a cross, and then you're like, this does not look very kind. That's better. Not very good. Look no further than the cross. When, when Paul says here that, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. What does he mean? He means that the kindness and love of God is expressed in the incarnation. The kindness and love of God that we've had since before time even began. It's expressed concretely in time and history. And God putting on flesh. And coming and rescuing us from our condition. Not because he needed to. Not because if he didn't have somebody to spend time with in heaven, he would have been lonely. Not because of any of that. Because it's all undeserving. One of the most profound words in Scripture comes in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says these words. They're words that I still ponder today. They're words that I still think about. And I have not grasped. The entire meaning of it. I don't know if I ever will. Verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In love. God knew we would rebel against him. God knew we would turn away from him. God knew we would become those who were disobedient, foolish, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living malice, envy, being hated and hating one another. God knew that we would do that, and God chose to create us anyways, and God chose to create us not only for that, but God chose to save us in Jesus Christ. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done. There are so many kinds of gospels out there that try to say, 
Well, God does 99%. You know, he does 99%. But you do 1%. And some people say that 1% is by believing. Right? And some people say that 1% is by being baptized. Some people say that 1% is by doing this other thing or that other thing. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that God saved us 100%. And it's not because of anything that we have done. Not because of any righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. Listen to these descriptors God, that Paul is using. The kindness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. And this is what Paul says. He saved us through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, a lot of times when Paul points to salvation, he would point to the cross, right? But in this analogy, in this gospel proclamation, uh, Paul has actually pointed to, that did not work out very well, Pentecost, isn't he? He's pointing to the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He's pointing to the reality of re- regeneration. And that's appropriate because the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives comes to fruition through the perfection of Christ's work in the act of pouring out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And Christ actually has a conversation with Nicodemus about this. He says, don't you know that you must be born again of the Spirit? You have to be reborn. The Spirit is the one that does this work. You're you're a prophet. You're, You're somebody who teaches the Old Testament. Don't you know this? So Jesus is saying, the reason I'm coming here is because in your condition, you cannot believe. In your condition, you are turned so inward that you will not place faith in me. But I must come and through my work of salvation on the cross and in the resurrection, I free you from the guilt and condemnation that your sins deserve. And I purchase for you The power of the Holy Spirit regenerating your stone heart and turning it into a heart of flesh. Taking you who are dead in trespasses and sins. You're not almost dead. This isn't Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. No, you're dead. You are not in an ocean and Jesus is throwing you a lifesaver. And all you got to do is grab on that lifesaver and he'll pull you in. No, you're dead. Rigor mortis has set in. You're floating in the water. And they've sent somebody to pick up the cadaver. And the Holy Spirit comes and breathes spiritual life into you. 
so that you look upon Jesus Christ and you see him as beautiful, as precious. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's only possible through the completed, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is the analogy Paul is using here of the gospel. The the kindness of God is shown in the fact that without the intervention of God, not simply in providing salvation for us, but in applying that actual salvation to our lives, to our hearts, by getting us to be sheep who would hear the Savior's voice. God is expressing his kindness, his love, his mercy to us so profoundly, so deeply, that we would become, through our justification by his grace, heirs having the hope of eternal life. And Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is one of those places where the verse markers don't help, I don't think. I think that what they should have done here, if I would have been on the NIV committee for the translation, I would have said, stick that verse 8 after This is a trustworthy saying because it brings confusion. What is the trustworthy saying that Paul is saying here? Is it the thing that comes after? That doesn't make sense because he's saying a conjunction there, right? And I want you to stress these things. So this is not the trustworthy saying that Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is a trustworthy saying is verse 4 through 8a. This is the trustworthy saying. But when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Paul is telling Titus, as you go to these churches... Bring this saying with you as a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hope that we have. The God who has saved us by his grace and his kindness and his love and his mercy. This is the lifeblood of your ministry. This is what will fuel you. This is what will keep you moving forward. This is a trustworthy saying and it is. It is. It's one of those verses that would be a good one to commit to memory. By the way, some people point to this passage to argue for the regeneration, uh, uh, baptismal regeneration, because it says here, uh, washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Um, that is actually what baptism signifies, but um, it is uh, the actual sign, That's what, uh, the actual sign is baptism, but the seal is the actual work of the Holy Spirit. So, third point, do what is good. 
So Paul finishes by saying to Titus, I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. See the connection Paul makes here. He says, Titus, this is what I want you to stress in your teaching. This is what I want you to stress in what you communicate. The core message of that is being saved by grace through faith, right? That is the core message. The core message of that is this, right? And he'll even say in verse 9 and following, avoid these other things. Avoid these foolish controversies. Avoid all these, um, you know, um, all these conspiracy theories and all these things going on. Avoid that, right? And avoid the divisive people. And avoid quarrels and, and fighting and all this unprofitable and useless stuff. Focus on the gospel, right? But the connection between the gospel and a changed life is what Paul is stressing here. He's saying, so that those who have trusted in God, so they have done this. They have had faith, right? May be careful. May be sober-minded. May be thoughtful. May be you could say another word to use here is intentional, right? To do what? Devote themselves to good. And Paul is not ashamed about the connection between justification and sanctification. And as Christians, we shouldn't be either. When we are justified by God's grace... That also means that that salvation is going to work itself in our lives through sanctification. Um, Lord's Day 32 of the Heidelberg Catechism says this specifically. It says, if we've been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it, why then must we still do good? This is an important question because some people have said, if the reason why we're saved is because nothing that we've done, and now we've got God's grace, we're cleared of all our condemnation then why should I change it all? Why can't I just go on sinning and doing whatever I want that, that grace may abound? The more I sin, the more God gets to show his grace, right? This is what the, the catechism says. To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ, by his spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us and so that he may be praised through us. Those who are saved by God also desire that God would be praised through their lives. Those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ also know that what Christ purchased for us includes our growing in holiness and godliness. And a secondary reason is that the good that we do is something that can bring assurance of our salvation by its fruits. And a third reason why we pursue a Christian life of godliness and holiness, growing and doing good, right, is so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Our neighbors may say, why have you changed so much? Why are you transformed? Why do you care about people that other people don't like, that other people don't um, treat kindly? Why do you show kindness? Why do you show mercy? 
And, and Paul is hoping that those in, in Crete, that Titus is teaching, that they would be able to say, you want to know why I show kindness? You want to know why I show love? You want to know why I show mercy? Because the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. And he saved me. Not because of righteous things that I've done. But because of his mercy. He saved me through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on me generously through Jesus Christ my Savior. So that having been justified by his grace. I might become an heir. Having the hope of eternal life. That's why. I'm a changed person because... God has transformed me. God has shown me his grace. God has shown me his love. God has shown me his mercy. How can I not be different? How can I not be different? So Paul ends and says, that they may be careful to do what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And so that you might know that uh, scriptural teaching is consistent, you'll find this exact same summary of our salvation and what our salvation is to in this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. Verse 8 and 9 are always quoted often, memorized, but many times we forget that last verse, verse 10. That's important. It's important that we include this, right? This is what Paul says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were once sinners, swallowed by the misery which you lived in. But just like Aslan appeared to Shasta, God and his kindness and love appeared to us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Christ purchased for us the application of our salvation and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that brought us to faith in him. That we might know that we've been justified by his grace and have become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying that I call upon you to carry with you everywhere you go. And may it also be the fuel, the energy by which you pursue Christian living, by which you pursue the doing of good. As you remind yourself of the good God so kindly showed you. May you be filled with a desire to live the good life for God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you that in Christ, your kindness saved us from our sin unto good works. We pray, Lord, that we would live in light of what your scripture has taught us tonight. That we would never lose sight of the goodness of the gospel. And that we would never stop growing in our expression of gratitude to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.